Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality and dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of a sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, is an eight, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw they and the beasts will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put in, into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handling over their royal power to the beasts until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that is dominion over the kings of the earth. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and acknowledge that you are the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Um, we ask that you would cause us to rejoice in that knowledge, that through your word you would teach us about uh, the nature of evil, about um, what it looks like, but also about the fact that uh, you have conquered. May this fill us with joy. May it fill us with confidence and boldness. Uh, and may we get a sense of, of your love and of the idea that you are in control. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Um, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or whether you are not a Christian at all or whether you're a brand new Christian, uh, the book of Revelation can be really weird. Okay, if you've ever read it or tried to read it, uh, especially in the middle, 
you come across uh, angels zipping around and bowls and trumpets and beasts with multiple heads and horns and slain lambs and all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, it can be intimidating, it can be daunting, it can be perplexing, or it can be just be downright confusing. Um, what Revelation is, is uh, an ancient genre, right? Today, what I wonder is if in a thousand years from now, someone looks back on, you know, the Marvel Universe as a genre, right? Or fantasy as a genre, would they think it's odd? Would they think it's strange? Would they know how to read it? We do. We know how to pick up a comic book and understand how to go through it and be entertained and informed by it. Uh, in the first century, uh, there was a genre called apocalypse, right? And that's what the book of Revelation is. And so if you'll allow me before we jump into chapter 17, I'd like to frame the book for us so we understand what it's trying to do um, and understand what its big message is. And that will help us understand what this chapter is doing in the process. Um, the, the story, the grand message of Revelation stretches all the way back to Genesis and Eden, which we'll see in a moment. But what it's trying to do is first show us a vision of how glorious and majestic and awesome God is. In the first couple of chapters, we're told that God and Jesus are the one who was and is and is to come. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the one who sits on a throne at the center of the universe, overseeing all wisely and purposely. And he's even attended by strange and ministering and powerful spirits. But most importantly, perhaps, the book of Revelation portrays God's glory as that which is centered and worked out through the love and sacrifice of Jesus for humans. Look with me at Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Revelation 5, verse 9. We're, uh, we're speaking here to Jesus, who is portrayed as a slain lamb, and he is told this, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were killed, and at the cost of your own blood you have purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have appointed them as, king, as a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels in a circle around the throne, as well as the living creatures and the elders. Their number was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands times thousands, all of whom were singing in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. What is going on here? In chapter 4, we're, we're brought into the very throne room of God at the center of the whole universe, and what we see is a scroll, but it's sealed, it's locked up, and for that reason, there's sadness. Who can open the scroll? Nobody. Nobody can open the scroll and its seals. Ah, but there is one, and it's Jesus. The scroll here represents God's plan and purpose and destiny for history, to judge all that which is evil and unjust and be rid of it forever and to promote and restore and foster all that which is good and that which he intended for his good world. That's what the scroll is. And nobody can open it except Jesus. And on what basis can he open it? He can open it because he was killed. Because the God of the universe came in flesh to take upon himself the consequences for our sin. He took into himself 
all of the selfishness and the hatred and the evil and the injustice and the lust and the greed that you and I go about every day. He absorbed that wrath into himself. And when he rose from the dead on our behalf, he didn't just provide a path back to us. He, he didn't just provide a path back to God. What he did was unleashed new creation into the world. And that's what we see here in Revelation 5. And where is it all headed? Well, Revelation tells us that as well. It tells us in chapter 21. Let's just take a look at chapter 21, verse 1. Where do we see that it's all headed? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them once again, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will not exist anymore, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist. For Christians, we don't just tell ourselves this story as a fantasy. This isn't something that we hope is true, but secretly know is not. It's not like reading a comic book, right? Because there is no Batman who's going to come and save Gotham. Right? But for us who have experienced, who now experience, who today, this moment, experience the love of Jesus, the empowerment of the Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, we are given a new status, we are given a new future, we experience that in our lives each moment of every day. And so we know our hearts sing with confidence about the fact that this is indeed where history is headed. Revelation shows us that the salvation offered in Jesus is not just about restoring our relationship with God. Actually, Jesus' death and resurrection is the pivot point for all of history. It unleashes and begins the process of the restoration of all things and the judgment and removal of all that should not be. And so if we keep that in mind, the middle part the visions, the highly symbolic pictures and symbols, they become more understandable, more easy to read. What are they showing us? We can see that what is portrayed in the middle of the book is a vision that John is giving us. It's meant in, in highly symbolic and pictorial terms to pull back the curtain of this physical world, to show us that in history and in reality, this that we see and touch and feel is not all that there is, but rather we are given a glimpse into what is really going on behind the scenes. And that message is that there is no wrong or hurt that befalls a follower of Jesus that God is not aware of and in control of. He sees it all, he knows it all, he controls it all, None of it is meaningless. None of the suffering you go through as a follower of Jesus is purposeless. It's not meaningless. As John Piper put it, and commenting on another text of Paul's, he says, it's producing in us a peculiar weight of glory. Right? It is driving towards something. He knows it. He has planned it. He will guide us safely through it right? to the end that we just read in chapter 21. 
So we see then that the message of the book of Revelation can be summed up like this. God rules history through the victorious resurrection of Jesus. Through him, he will judge all that is evil and unjust and wrong and renew and redeem and restore all his people and all of creation. So what is the book meant to do for us? It's meant to bless those who read it. Revelation in chapter 1 verse 3 is the only book of the Bible that tells us that we will be specifically blessed if we read it. Blessed are those who read this book. The only book in the Bible. Not that we're not blessed if we read the other ones, but anyway. What it's meant to do is to bless those who read it by helping us hang on tight to Jesus. To be bold and joyful in our witness for him. It does this by pulling back the curtain of the mundane and showing us that God is truly and really in control, even when it doesn't seem like it, perhaps when it most doesn't seem like it. He is wise and able to guide the destiny of history and his people towards a time when we will be consoled forever. Uh, so in that respect, what we can say is that Revelation is not really meant to be explained as I'm up here trying to explain it, right? It's meant to be experienced. It's just meant to be picked up and read. You wouldn't grab a copy of your favorite movie uh, and read the transcript, right? You put it in the, in the DVD player. That's really old. You stream it um, and you just watch it. You experience it. And even if you don't understand all of the details, right? You don't get hung up on isolated details. You become engrossed in the story. What we're meant to do is read it and in the process, praise the Lord. We're meant to cheer for the saints. We're meant to root for them. We're meant to detest the beast. We're meant to be horrified by the prostitute. We're meant to long for final victory. That's what we do when we read Revelation. We uh, are joyfully called to persevere through that which is most tempting and most painful because we know that we are sons and daughters of God on our way to the restoration of all things. So given that, what can we say about Revelation 17? Let's jump in. Well, funny enough, the main idea of this chapter is pretty similar to the main idea of the whole book. As we look, we will see that evil is deceptive, it's frightening, it's tempting, and it's persistent. But by God's wisdom and might, evil will ultimately destroy itself. Hence, believers are meant to be encouraged by this chapter by being forewarned and forearmed because we now understand the nature and process of evil. And so we can avoid it. We can persevere through it. Look uh, in verse 7, chapter 17, verse 7. What does the angel say? He says, I will interpret for you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads. So that's what this chapter is about. The angel is going to interpret for us the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. That's what this chapter is going to reveal for us. At the very beginning in the first verse, we read that the angel who's going to do this is one of the seven bowl angels, we'll call him. Right? That's from just a few verses earlier in chapter 16. What are the bowl angels doing? What they're doing is finally, climactically, definitively pouring out God's wrath upon Babylon, upon evil and injustice, and ridding the world of it through judgment. 
And so it's fitting that one of these angels comes and he's telling John, I'm about to expand on that judgment that you saw at the end of chapter 16. Okay, actually that judgment upon Babylon goes from chapter 17 all the way through chapter 19. Before uh, we're going to get into the judgment itself, although it's previewed in chapter 17, before we can actually jump into that judgment, John and the angel want to explain to us the nature of evil, which is exactly what he does here. The first thing we see uh, when we arrive into this chapter is uh, that evil is tempting and seducing and enticing. Uh, look with me. I will show you uh, in verse 1. Come, he said, I will show you the condemnation and punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality and the earth's inhabitants got drunk with the wine of her immorality. So we're introduced immediately to a prostitute. This is meant to evoke the image of seduction, of enticement, of temptation. And indeed, she is that. Right? All of the earth's inhabitants and the kings of the earth come and commit sexual immorality with her. She's seducive. She's tempting. She's attractive. They come and they get drunk with the wine that she has to offer. What this shows is a figurative depiction of all of the kings of the earth and all of the earth's inhabitants who aren't found in God, in Christ. It shows them coming and, 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 and trading with her. What they trade is their allegiance, their loyalty. And what they gain, we're going to see, is comfort and pleasure. Right? So uh, it's, it's kind of hard to know all the time how to interpret the prostitute, especially when we get to the beast. But I think the, the image here suggests that Babylon the Great, this prostitute, is probably the prevailing economic religious system of the world. What I mean by that is it's very specifically not the power of the state, the corrupt and violent power of a nation or a kingdom. It's the flip side of that. It's the economic religious system of our world that provides and promises comfort and pleasure and material wealth. All of that, if only you will just accept uh, what she offers and bow down, sort of worship, sort of give your allegiance to what it is that she uh, has on offer. In the first century, that would have been very explicit. What you'd have been expected to do is go to temples and worship other gods and goddesses. You would have been expected to honor that Caesar is Lord, right? That would have been a very explicit exchange. And then you get access to all of Rome's wealth and material support, right? In this day and age, it's a bit more subtle, but no less uh, jarring and, <laughs> and horrible. We see that the nations of the world t uh, involve themselves in this. They are ensured economic prosperity and security. They taste of that and are intoxicated by it. The intoxication indicates that they have become numb to what it is they're trading away. Right? And that once you become intoxicated, you want more. They're unable any longer to resist because they've willingly given themselves over and numbed themselves to the coming judgment that is pronounced for us in the very first verse. So it looks something today like accepting the world's standards concerning whatever, sexual freedom, expression of 
any kind, in any form, in any way, unbridled and unlimited materialism, functional atheism. Christians are meant to feel strange and foolish and stupid for believing that there is a reality beyond what we can see and that God is in control of it, right? Every day we are hammered with the, everywhere we go with the message that we are backwards and bigoted and stupid for believing what we believe. We're invited to partake of that so that what we can get in return is whatever we want, whatever it is. Uh, is, uh, is unlimited comfort and pleasure your thing? It's there at the touch of a button, right? Um, YouTube or any streaming service, Netflix, whatever you want, is sex your thing? Pornography is, again, right in your pocket, in your phone, right? Whatever you want, it's on offer, and all you have to trade for it is fidelity to God, and you can have it. There's not really... Uh, uh, there's not, we don't really, I was, I was struggling to search for an illustration for this, but we don't really need one, do we? You see, the thing is, if the lust of the heart is common to all and includes the usual suspects, wealth, fame, power, health, beauty, we have all of that available to us. And all that needs to come in trade is our faithfulness and obedience to God. It's very difficult to resist that temptation because this sin is deep-seated in all of us. It goes all the way back to the fall. It goes all the way back to eating of the apple at Eden. Another symbol, did it really happen? I think probably yes, but it was also, I think, at Eden meant to be symbolic and pictorial. What did Eve think after she ate the apple? Was it just about disobedience? No. What she was thinking, as Pastor John uh, Piper put it, was this. God is withholding some, something from me that I really want. He's, he's, he's keeping back something from me that's really exciting, and he's keeping it from me by threatening me with death if I try and get it. It's good food, and God won't let me have it. This is beautiful, and God wants to keep it from me. And perhaps, even worst of all, Eve says to herself, this will make me wise so I can decide for myself what is right and wrong. It's that fallen desire in every single one of us and the evil spiritual forces behind it that give rise over centuries and millennia to Babylon the Great, the seducing uh, prostitute. Now, we look closer at her and we see that what she's holding is actually horrific, right? She has a cup, but it's filled with impurity. She's glutted herself on the blood of the saints. So how is it that we can be enticed or seduced? How are the kings of the nation seduced by her if, if she's wearing fine jewelry and clothing, but she's also disgusting and horrific? It might seem strange at first, but the point is that often that which tempts us the most is also that which is the most disturbing. When we give in to sex and lust and greed and selfishness and anger and hatred. It's dark and it's twisted. It's broken and we know it, and yet we are still seduced by it. True then, true now. So why are we being told all this though, right? We're meant, as we pointed out, to be understanding the nature of this woman. Well, in this chapter, we are told up front that she's headed for judgment and destruction. 
right? Right away, we're told, come, I will show you the punishment, the condemnation. So not only would we be foolish to follow her, but also uh, she is the image of a woman, in this case, a prostitute dressed in finery. She has gold and jewels dressed in scarlet fine robes. And she's meant, I think, to be contrasted with the bride of the lamb just a few chapters over in 19, right? There we meet another woman, not a prostitute, not dressed up in fake finery that actually reveals horrific things. But what we meet in chapter 19, one, is the bride of the lamb. She's described as one who is dressed in bright, clean, fine linen. And that linen is interpreted as the righteous deeds of the saints, produced not in our own power, but by the power of the spirit. Right? So the prostitute here is meant to be contrasted with other women in chapter, say, 12, and especially in chapter 19. So we're being told, she's being portrayed this way to us so that we can understand that what the world holds out is disgusting and horrific, but tempting and, sedu and seductive. Also, we see that this prostitute is trying to mimic. She's an ugly imitation. She's a, a pathetic parody of what we are meant to be in Christ. We're meant to be people dressed in fine linen, the righteous deeds that God has prepared for us to do uh, empowered by his spirit with the new life that flows through us. That's what we're meant to be. That's what we're driving towards. We are that and we will be more of that at the end. And so the prostitute here is an ugly imitation of it. And we're meant to be forearmed and forewarned with that knowledge. We can see it coming, right? We turn away from it and recognize that the solution to the disturbing enticement of Babylon is to keep our hearts fixed on the beauty and the justice of God. Fill your mind and your heart with the all-supplying life and joy of God in Jesus so that you can see the prostitute for what she is. Not the cup she's holding, but what's in the cup. We also uh, need to talk about the beast, and we hear most about him in verses 7 through 14. We've looked at the enticing and tempting nature of evil as the economic religious system of the world, and now we will see how it is paired with the, with the power and might of violence and injustice. We're introduced to the beast in uh, verse 3, where we see that the woman is sitting on a scarlet beast, and he's full of blasphemous names. He has seven heads and ten horns. Uh, that she is sitting on the beast is meant to portray the fact that she is well paired with him. They are working in tandem. They are on the same team. They go hand in hand. The idea of sitting throughout the book of Revelation meant um, that you were at your ease. God is the one who sits on his throne, right? But here, the woman is sitting on the dragon. Uh, I'm sorry, not the dragon, the beast. Uh, who is this beast? Uh, it's the same beast from chapter 13. In chapter 13, uh, almost exactly the same terminology is used to describe the beast. And from there, we actually learn that the beast is, a, is from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, we are told of another prophecy, and in it is depicted four beasts that rise out of the chaotic waters in order to threaten and oppose God's people. 
John in the book of Revelation has taken each of those four beasts which originally represented four different kingdoms and he's mashed them together to create one dreadful, horrible, fierce enemy. He has seven heads and he has ten horns. In short, uh, the beast is a nation, right? A trans-temporal, trans-historic nation who uses its corrupt power to do violence, to threaten and persecute God's people if and when they don't respond to the temptations and the enticements of the prostitute. Right? So the prostitute works to tempt and seduce, and if that doesn't work, there's always the threat of violence, of exclusion, of ostracization, of, of, of actual physical threat and force. Uh, in, in John's day, that certainly would have been the Roman Empire, right? Huge and massive. It would have been that which demanded loyalty and fealty at the edge of a sword. Uh, in, in, in John's day, probably in the 90s, they would have gone through violent persecution from Nero in the late 60s, where many Christians were killed. Uh, but in our day, it's still present, right? Whether it's through Hitler or Stalin, uh, whatever nation, whatever world power uses its power to oppress and persecute God's people until the culmination of history, that's what is represented by the beast. He has many horns and many heads, and these are representative. Again, we're not to, to get hung up on the details. The number seven and the number 10 are numbers of fullness or completion. They're meant to represent the fullness and power and authority that the beast lays claim to. And indeed, uh, we know or have experienced or have heard or can imagine that the power of this beast is indeed formidable. And of course, now we also see how the beast and the prostitute attack the church in tandem. Uh, and here's the thing. It's very hard to, maybe we can avoid one or the other. It's very hard to resist and stand faithful to both. Vern Poitras put it this way. We tend to give our allegiance to what we desire in sex, money, pleasure, and fame, but we also tend to give our allegiance or worship to that which we fear, whether it be physical pain or poverty, the scorn of our fellow man or woman, society at large, which mocks and ridicules those who would follow Jesus. What cannot be accomplished through temptation is accomplished through violence, poverty, scorn, and mocking. Notice that the beast is also described in terms that are eerily similar to Jesus and God. We spoke at the beginning that one of the titles for God and Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. It's meant to be this grand description of the eternality and the omnipotence of God. He is the one who was and is and is to come. See, look at the beast and how he's described. Uh, he's described in verse 8 as the one who was and is not, but is about to come up from the abyss and then go to destruction. Uh, the phrase is not and it coming up is probably not just an attempt to copy this phrase of the one and only God. It's probably also an attempt by the beast to imitate the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
Jesus died and rose, and through that sacrifice, the power of God is unleashed in the world, and the beast attempts to mimic it. Again, an ugly imitation, a horrible, frightening parody of that which is true and real and lovely and beautiful. He comes up out of the abyss, which implies his demonic nature, but it won't be for long. The beast is attempting to position himself and his power as absolute and that which comes from and belongs to God. And then we have this bit, this bit in the middle, which is admittedly confusing, right? We've got the angel telling us we've got seven kings and seven hills and ten kings and an eighth king who is from the seventh king. And what is going on there, right? It's, it's all a bit confusing and it's overwhelming. And that's precisely the point. I don't think we're meant to try and figure out which kings are which and how it all works. I think what we're meant to do is be overwhelmed by the, by the multifaceted nature of this dragon, of this beast, rather. Uh, he is a beast who has the allegiance of many, many other nations and kings and people. And uh, he here is what we're being shown is that whether one or many whether a coalition of forces against God's people or whether through a single representative, the power of evil with Satan behind it is indeed frightening and it's confusing. You can't put your finger on it. You can't nail it down. It becomes all the more fierce, like the hydra in Greek myth. We cut off one head and there's seven more trying to attack you. The combination of the prostitute and the beast is indeed enough uh, to frighten or maybe inspire admiration from others. We read that the inhabitants of the earth, all those whose names have not been written in the book of life, will be astounded when they see it, right? And they will lend their support to it. But again, we're meant to ask, what is the point of all this? I'm frightened, I'm scared, I'm bewildered, I'm confused. So why are you telling me this and how is it supposed to help me understand the slain lamb and the direction we're headed? Well, again, it's to, it's to provide forewarning. It's to arm us with information, not just intellectual, but of a spiritual nature. Look in verse 9. We see that the angel tells us this requires a mind that has wisdom divine wisdom and insight, which is what we're being given if we are followers of Jesus. We see that through this vision, that no matter what the might of Rome or Hitler or Stalin or whoever it is, it is capable of great evil, but it's not outside the knowledge and control of God. Notice, right away, again with the beast, just as with the prostitute, we're, set, we're told that he's headed for destruction. We already know his end is secure and it's defeat and death. Again, in verse 11, we're told that the beast is headed for destruction, right? But also, there's more subtle hints of it. Uh, notice that uh, um, we're told that the 10 kings, it says, they will receive ruling authority. They will receive a kingdom in verse 12. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive a kingdom. Who will they receive it from? It might be natural to think they receive it from the beast, 
But if you've been paying close attention to the whole book of Revelation, probably it's not the beast. Probably they receive it from God, right? He gives them the authority to rule. He is not surprised or taken aback or caught off guard. He knows and he has planned for this. It's even more explicit. Look in verse 17, which we'll get to in just a second. God has put it into their minds to carry out his purpose. He's put it into, his, into their minds to carry out his purpose. So once again, we see that the end of this beast, powerful though it is, frightening though it is, its end is destruction and judgment. And nothing that is happening here or that is happening in your life in terms of suffering is meaningless or outside of his knowledge or control or care. He has planned it, and he will keep you. It's true that the dragon, the beast, the prostitute, they will persecute the church greatly. And we are called to follow Jesus through suffering into the new creation. We are told here what to expect. And we know that we are on the side of the victorious lamb. Once the beast actually decides to turn and attack and confront, he's defeated, he's routed. In verse 14, he makes war, but the lamb will conquer because he is the true Lord of lords and King of kings. And we are accompanying him. Our vindication is to follow and accompany. We are in some sense, in some way, part of the vindication over evil over injustice, right? Jesus is our captain whom we follow joyfully and willingly. Finally, in verses 15 through 18, we see that evil will destroy itself just as God had planned it. Just as the beginning of the vision has already announced the judgment of the prostitute and we already know that the defeat of the beast is assured because the lamb will do it, in verse 15 and 18, we're told more Right? Not only is God in direct control and he actively is removing injustice and will continue to do so, but he is also ordained and decreed that evil will ultimately destroy itself. What do we see here? We see that the ten horns and the beast, they turn on the prostitute and they destroy her. The imagery is vivid and disturbing and it's meant to be threefold metaphor for her destruction. Note these in Revelation. When you come across the number 7 or 10 or 12 or 3 or multiples of it, it's important, right? She's, she's depicted with a threefold destruction. She is stripped naked, she is eaten, and then she is burned. Evil literally devours itself. And we're left to ask, well, what happened? It looked like they were going to win. And Beale puts it this way, only inspiration from God could cause them to commit such a short-sighted and foolish act. At the end of history, God will defeat Satan in part by causing him to rise up against himself and be divided so that he cannot stand, but will be his own worst enemy. The, the exact and polar opposite of the triune God who acts in perfect harmony and unity to bring about his good ends for his people. Evil will always turn on itself because it can only mock and parody and imitate the true power and glory and wisdom of God. So what are we to do in response? What is our reaction? Where do we go? 
Well, for that, you'll have to wait a bit until chapter 18, where in chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, God calls, he says, come out from Babylon. Don't be a part of that. But I'll leave that uh, to others to explore. What I would say is that in this chapter, we end back where we began. God rules history through the victorious resurrection of Jesus. Through him, he will remove all that is unjust and wrong and renew, redeem, and restore his people and creation. So chapter 17 is to be read and experienced. It's also to be read, remember, in light of chapter 4 and 5 and in light of chapters 21 and 22. As we look to the end of the book, it's not just the certainty of defeat that comforts us, but ultimately the solution to the seductive and threatening power of evil is not to fight violently against it with physical force, but to resist by delighting in the God who has broken the power of evil through the love and strength of Jesus. It is through our bold and faithful and joyous witness, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, that is what shouts victory the loudest to the unbelieving world. It is this which the world cannot understand and will hate us for all the more, that though it tries to destroy us, though it causes us pain and suffering and death, we know that Jesus is our good captain and we willingly and joyfully follow him through suffering because we know that the path to glory leads through suffering and death and out the other side. He taught us that by doing it for us. And that power and that force is alive in us, which is also why we are convinced that this is not a happy fairy tale, but what is actually going on behind the scenes right now in this moment. In this moment, if we could pull back this dimension to see the heavenly, we would see God and we would see Jesus ruling at his right hand, wisely guiding all of history to its purpose, to its end. In this vision in chapter 17, we're shown that a brutal and seductive power is at work in the world. It's both human, it's demonic, it's strong, but, and it's tempting. But through these visions, we are meant to be forearmed and forewarned. We are meant to see that God is active and at work, and that nothing we go through or endure because of the fallen and broken world is meaningless or purposeless. Though we may limp through this life at times, it is a victorious limp. And by remaining faithful in life and testimony, by showing forth the love of Jesus, we also walk towards and head towards a time when night will be no more, because the Lord will shine on us forever and ever. And so we say, as John does at the end of the vision, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord, and make it so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so easy to get bogged down in, in the mundane. It is so easy to lose sight, to get lost, to fail to remember that this is not our home, but that we are headed towards something better. We pray that through reading this passage, through reflecting on it, and through working through the book of Revelation, we can see, we can see past. We can look not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. We pray that you would bring to life in us again, fan to flame 
our love of you. Give us a vision of your new creation and help us hold it in front of our hearts and our minds so that we can recognize and resist joyfully the evil that comes our way. We will do all of this for your glory, and we pray it in your son's awesome and mighty name. Amen.